for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett and I'm Julia Clare. And today is a brilliant morning. Oh, it's, gorgeous. It's a fucking spring day. It's a beautiful day in February. There is climate change, but it's, uh, you know, but it feels good. It feels good. And you know what else? You know what else? Uh, you know what else feels good is uh, what feels good, Kate? It's Bernie Sanders. Uh, demolishing in nevada senator bernard just sailing into the sunset in nevada he just won so much he won by so much i I mean yeah and in a field this big like come on oh it was it was good okay we have we have 60 percent of precincts reporting at this point and uh bernie sanders uh has uh 10 delegates so far uh joe biden pete Buttigieg, and elizabeth warren have no delegates so far uh bernie sanders is at a uh, 46 percent of the vote and the next person behind him is uh joe biden and uh at 19.6 i mean just so it is just you know it's really a uh, clean sweep for our boy yeah it's <laughs> yeah i mean some notable things about this race uh it, it really um a lot of the culinary union workers voted for bernie sanders mm-hmm. remember like last week uh for folks who were following it there was that whole um thing where some of the culinary union leaders uh spoke out against medicare for all because they had a, a cadillac health plan but you saw a lot of those workers um coming out and saying yeah you know we do have this job with like a great health plan now but like who knows what happens if we right. lose this job and i think people's understanding of what medicare for all would do is actually much more sophisticated than what people who are like people to judge with the Medicare for all who want it, what they're trying to like cynically do here. Totally. And I think that that is the power of um, the people who have been kind of fighting against the fear mongering and misinformation that has been spread about Medicare for all. Uh, And the culinary union is, I think the largest union in Nevada. Um, And, you know, basically everything that powers the big the big cities in Nevada uh, are propped up by the workers of the Culinary Union. It's a huge. They they I don't did they endor- I don't think they endorsed anyone. Um, no, they didn't endorse anyone. I think that was like a big. Yeah, that was like one of the, one of the big the big things there. But, but when they spoke out against Medicare for all, you know, there were some people who were uh, replying on Twitter. I think. You know, there were people who said genuinely disgusting things, but I think a lot of it was a lot of it was kind of like, you know, this is a lie or this isn't true or something and not not stuff that I would at least consider like full harassment by any means. And then uh, it was certainly weaponized by the other candidates against uh, Bernie Sanders because it's like, oh, you know, we have these like reply guys, these Bernie bros like Bloomberg made an ad about Bernie bros. Did you see that? I I think we talked about it last week, but I mean... (laughs) It's very... It's very stupid. It's very stupid. The big thing about Nevada is that it is... Um, the Nevada caucus is the first... Basically, um, you know, in, in the primary calendar, it's the first state that is more um, ethnically diverse than the states that preceded. Uh, I think those... Yeah, that was Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, which are two very white states. Um, but... I think it really demonstrates the fact that this is a movement and it's uh, it's one that a lot of people have underestimated for a long time and mischaracterized intentionally for a long time. And it's really exciting, especially going into South Carolina, where some polls show Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden tied. Some of them show him only trailing Biden by a few points, which is huge considering that biden for so long in south carolina had a double digit lead um and i think that the momentum going forward i mean it's just like he's won bernie has won the first three states it's huge and that victory in nevada was 
decisive to say the very least <laughs> i would call it uh an annihilation an annihilation <laughs> yeah. uh, um and you know fucking owned the rest of the candidates yeah and it really it really was um latino voters that Absolutely. delivered this victory mm-hmm. and i think that it's going to be harder and harder even for the most cynical people to maintain the lie that working class politics are white People white. politics yeah. and you know obviously there are many wealthy people that are very invested in this narrative but i mean it's becoming really hard to even at its very most cynical sell that case totally. to people yeah completely agree um i think it was really funny that uh pete Buttigieg came in third and basically like gave a victory speech anyways uh he truly the more the longer his campaign goes on the more incoherent his messaging gets and his speeches get i like how he's adopting a different accent like for each campaign stop but it is just turning more and more into like the obama cadence it's so transparently him trying to do obama's cadence um but yeah he says nothing uh and he came in third like a a distant third yeah and you know pete like in his concession speech uh went after the tone of bernie's campaign for being divisive and that is pretty rich when you consider that Pete's support is uh, almost all white. I mean, the people supporting Bernie Sanders are a multiracial working class coalition and the people supporting Pete, you know, it's a pretty narrow slice of the population. So, uh, wealthy white moms. (laughs) Far be it for him to be talking about unity. And he was actually called out by uh, the mayor of New York City where, uh, you know, we we live, our mayor, uh, we, we live in Brooklyn, but he's still big build uh, <laughs> yeah uh who said hey pete Buttigieg, uh, try not to be so smug when you just got your ass kicked you know how we form a winning coalition to beat trump with a true multiracial coalition of working americans something bernie sanders has proven he can do and you haven't dude show some humility um which oh was oh my god i yeah. mean i remember i read that and i I was talking to our former guest, uh, Mohanad El Sheikhi, about this, and we both had the same reaction, which is we saw the content of it first before we saw who said it. We were like, hell yeah. <laughs> saw who said yeah. it. And we're like, oh boy. Yeah, I know. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of problems here in New York. I don't think either I mean, of us no, no, think no, no, that no, we no. are I'm, doing. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, yeah. if like the guy who we shit on all the time thinks that you're a piece of shit like you're really bad yeah um <laughs> and this was you know this particular moment was uh incredible big dick energy from bill de blasio and i'm you know what i'm so pleasantly surprised that he endorsed bernie in the first place a few yeah. weeks ago i couldn't i like couldn't believe it but you know as we say we love to see it um but i just really quickly want to read this one tweet that came after um that came after the Nevada caucus, uh, Pete Buttigieg in his weird line of, uh, victory defeat tweets said, if we can light up a high school gym, we can light a neighborhood. If we can light up a neighborhood, we can light a city. If we can light up a city, we can light up our country. And not only is that like mostly incoherent, but it's also like a weird, rip off of an 08 Obama speech. Yeah, to, I mean, but- to the point that like I I saw some of like the Pod Save America bros like dunking on him being like I loved your riff about your Kenyan father after <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, you know, it's an imitation of Obama with actually, I think a lot less substance and a lot less charisma. No, no, totally. But it is like somebody linked to the speech that everyone was referring to. And it is like a direct paraphrase of it's crazy. It is kind of also very interesting to see what's happening with liberals right now, because you are starting to see certain people accept that Bernie Sanders may be the nominee and actually uh, pledge their eventual support to him, as we can say with the pod save bros, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's many areas where <laughs> we do not have common ground with them, but you see like even, you know, these ex Obama people being like, yeah, if Bernie's the nominee, we're going to support him. 
him. Um, you know, they did have like a, a whole kind of a thing on their show last week about how uh, Bernie reply guys need to shape up. I think including like a little subtweet of uh, David Sirota in there, I think is who they were talking about. But I, you know what? If they don't include us, then it's not it's not a real. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I think. I don't know. I've noticed that the the general tone uh, among a lot of kind of uh, blue, no matter who Democrats towards the idea of a Bernie nomination, like has been getting kind of steadily more positive on the whole. I agree. Um, And, you know, it will definitely be fun. Like, you know, these like hardcore, like never burning people. It's it's going to be like there's not that many. They're overrepresented on Twitter. Absolutely. Um, very loud. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very loud. You know, um, but, you know, the people that are still doing like hardcore Russia conspiracies, which was like a thing that we saw uh, this week. Um, Bernie Sanders. Uh, there was some intelligence that Russia is trying to help his campaign, which I guess he knew about like a month ago, but he couldn't talk about it because it was classified, came out this week. Um, you know, he denounced it, of course. But um, yeah. yeah, but uh, the like uh, the Russia conspiracy theorists were were uh, out full on again. Those are our QAnon people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, you know, but I think more and more, like instead of just like the the Bernie bro reply guys um, getting on these people's kids, it's like you're going to start to see a lot more other liberals uh, it, up in the mentions being like, Bernie Sanders is the nominee. We have to vote blue no matter who. And it's going to be very funny to watch wait. these people owned by their own logic. I yeah. can't wait. But, you you know, not, I saw some people who don't, who are not Bernie supporters, like not Bernie primary supporters, linking to his donation page after Nevada. I just think that that's like that. I was very encouraged by that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm my, so excited. Yeah, my friend who was an Elizabeth Warren supporter, um, she texted me last night and she was really excited. Bernie won. I think <laughs> I saw this like Virgil Texas tweet a minute ago that fifty uh, percent of. Elizabeth Warren supporters would be very excited if Bernie Sanders were the nominee and the other 50% are on Twitter. Like, I think that <laughs> I actually think that there's, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to forget that like 50% really of people who are supporting Elizabeth Warren, like, like Bernie Sanders and have him as a second choice, you know, and it's just kind of, I would, if I had to guess, I would, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably more I would than 50%. And even, I mean, even 50% is a lot obviously, but like, I think, you know, even in Elizabeth Warren's concession speech that night, she said, like, it's been announced that Bernie won. Congratulations, Bernie. She, like, pumped her fist in the air and the crowd cheered. Like, I I think that I think mom and dad are going to get together to save the kids. (laughs) I hope so. Not everyone has received uh, the news of Bernie's overwhelming victory so positively last night was a true meltdown for the folks on msnbc (laughs) and we want to play you some uh highlight clips of this because man the shot in frota is uh is fucking amazing in this instance here i'm gonna i'm gonna play this clip from uh chris matthews for a moment I'm with Carville all the way in terms of the dangers of what alerts, what lies ahead in November. I'm very much aware of them. They're sitting on so much oppo research on Bernie, what he said in the past about world affairs, how far left he is. I'm not sure how far left he is, but they're going to make the most of that in terms of world politics. They're going to kill him. But uh, I think it's a little late to stop him. And I think that's the problem. I was reading last night, Brian, I know you're a history guy too. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 19. 19- 40 and the general Renault calls up Churchill and says it's over and Churchill said how can it be you got the greatest army in Europe how can it be over he said it's over so I had that pre- suppressed feeling yeah so uh Chris Matthews is uh comparing uh Bernie Sanders winning Nevada to uh the Nazi occupation of France um imagine no line yeah I think Chris certainly thinks that um the not me us movement will execute him personally <laughs> which of course we will not but it's, it's it's a bit funny that he thinks that we play you know we play the old union game of uh re-educate expropriate or execute chris we're not gonna execute (laughs) but that is it's so it's so interesting watching chris matthews absolutely have a fucking meltdown about bernie sanders 
increasingly over the last few weeks has been so crazy, especially considering that he was not like he was a lot more generous to Bernie in 2016. Maybe it's because he just wasn't threatened by him yeah, or something. Yeah, he was actually going to win. He was going to win. Yeah, or wanting to have but some very, semblance like, I just of remember objectivity. Him being like much more complimentary of of him and and his uh, his policy and his I don't know. Seeing uh, Chris Matthews needs. Uh, I think he's been lobotomized. I don't know. <laughs> let's let's play another uh, one last uh, centrist meltdown, and this will be this one will be from a uh, Joanne Reed. Oh, okay. The hungriest usually wins. And who's hungry? Right now, it is the Sanders people. And I think that the rest of us that sort of look at politics have underestimated the sheer unadulterated rage, the anger of working class people, especially young people who are living in with three uh, roommates and have a Lyft job and an Uber job and they can't make it. And they're looking at my generation, Gen X, who we could have it all in the Clinton years. And we were living well and our parents and grandparents. And they're like, throw the tables over. They're turning the tables over and they don't care what the potential result is they're the hungriest and he only had to consolidate them is that a compliment like that is very that is actually a very coherent astute yeah summation of the political landscape right now yeah but it's, it, it, yeah it no, sounds like an endorsement to me yeah i mean it's, it's it is um it's pretty i mean she she gets it at first right like she understands what's happening she understands the factors that are leading to it but then immediately pivots to uh how can it be stopped (laughs) you know so it's interesting i mean you see you know a lot of pundits have reached a point where they are not able to pretend that this is not happening (laughs) you know i mean bernie sanders is at this point the clear front runner you know and um it's just it's going to become impossible to talk about our movement. Like it's some kind of fringe thing. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not, it's like, this is, uh, you know, it's funny. I saw, I didn't, I didn't watch the clip, but I saw, um, there was like a conservative commentator on Fox news saying that Bernie Sanders is the democratic party. He is the new face of the democratic party. And it's like, and that's supposed to be like fear mongering as if like, what you know what they've always feared is that we're all socialists or whatever but it's true it's like he the future of the democratic party the future of the people who are going to show up and turn out and are motivated to do so are exactly what joanne reed was talking about angry people who are angry are righteously angry because we've been kind of like systemically set up to fail yeah um the the tide is is certainly turning and it'll be very interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks here um you know i have been worried over the past couple weeks that um you know, we could get a situation where Bernie Sanders wins the majority, not where Bernie Sanders wins the most delegates, but it's not at 51%. And then we have a, a ghoul like Mike Bloomberg take it at the convention. Um, but, I, you know, I'm feeling, I guess I'm feeling slightly less worried about it. It seems like actually Bernie's odds of actually reaching 51% are getting better and better. And th- you also, know. Bloomberg's numbers since uh, we didn't even talk about the debate. Let's but, talk about the debate for a minute. Uh, Bloomberg got. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled he was there. I, at first, I didn't want him to be there, and then and and I was kind of wondering like, why is Elizabeth Warren being like? People should see why he's like he should be in the debate people should see what they're getting with him and i was like that's kind of a weird thing to say and yeah she ripped him up gutted him yeah no it was i mean look but his but his numbers since the debate among moderate voters have plummeted i mean elizabeth warren in the debate really zeroed in on uh, all of the ndas um that he has signed to prevent women from talking about what is very likely sexual harassment in most yeah. of these incidents. He tried to be like, oh, it was an inappropriate joke. But, you know, she called on him in the debate to uh, release um, 
the uh, release the women from their from NDAs. their NDAs. Um, she noted some of the very horrible things that he said about women, and you know, just really exposed him for basically being Trump too. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I I think it's interesting that almost well everybody really took a swing at Bloomberg. He was the uh, the the king of the night in terms of just everyone uh, wanted to hurl a stone at him, and. I mean, when you have Joe Biden bringing up stop and frisk, like the man who authored the crime bill thinks that <laughs> thinks that stop and frisk like that's uh, it. Yeah. And and also it's I think it was great because it sh- I mean, it showed that Mike Bloomberg has absolutely mm, no abilities under pressure. He is a terrible public speaker. He Trump would absolutely murder him in a debate. Um Mini Mike B. Mini Mike B. That's yeah. it. The debate's over. <laughs> yeah, Trump has been tweeting nonstop about Mini Mike B, and it's very, very funny. Um, we hate Trump, obviously, but everything he says about Bloomberg is objectively funny. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. Um, yeah. Uh, so we have uh, some some highlights of uh, Trump tweets from last week. Uh, what Mini Mike is doing uh, is nothing less than a large scale illegal campaign contribution. He is spreading money all over the place only to have recipients of his cash payments. Many former opponents happily joining or supporting his campaign. Isn't that called a payoff? <laughs> um, <laughs> here's another one from the next day. Mini Mike Bloomberg's debate performance tonight was perhaps the worst in the history of debates. And there have been some really bad ones. <laughs> He was stumbling, bumbling, and grossly incompetent. If this doesn't knock him out of the race, nothing will. Not easy to do what I did, Um, which is, I don't know. I don't do not agree with don't that. Don't agree with that, but everything else, sure. Um, then uh, Mini Mike is illegally buying the Democratic nomination. They are taking it away from Bernie again. Mini Mike, major party nominations are not for sale. Good luck in the debate tomorrow night, and remember, no standing on boxes. <laughs> he has returned to this box thing so uh, many times, a couple times. It's um. You know, I mean, like Trump has tweeted uh, a few times about uh, the DNC trying to take the nomination away from Bernie, which, of course, they are doing. And, of course, um, you know, Trump has his own motivations for for this. If I had to guess what they were, I would say, like, that he does believe that the DNC will uh, take the nomination away from Bernie. And he's trying to sow the most division among uh, the establishment and Bernie supporters as possible. Yes, Totally. And also, I think from what I've heard from a lot of uh, on a lot of like conservative talk radio and conservative news is that Republicans wrong wrongfully think that Bernie or Warren will be the easiest to beat. I think, well, Trump has said that he is the most afraid of Bernie because Bernie has real followers. I know he says that, but the conventional wisdom of like conservative punditry is that we want to go up against Bernie because he's so quote unquote divisive and he's so he's too fringe. He's too far left, but they're wrong obviously. And he's getting the most votes. (laughs) Um, We have some other good news from this week, uh, which is that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez squad favorite, a hero to us has started a, uh, a new political action committee and it's kind of like an alternative to the DCCC but for progressives um and uh it's a uh, you know at, at, at this point she has endorsed a uh, an all-female slate of progressive candidates through her new um pack and uh yeah this is pretty cool because remember she was getting a lot of crap for not paying her uh dccc dues which is again i I said this at the time but nobody pays their dccc dues in congress yeah i mean (laughs) and also you know she's she's doing her own thing and like we've talked on the the blacklist about um oh yeah we talked about the dccc blacklist and almost every woman uh that we have interviewed on the show who's running for office is you know against an income against a democratic yeah not everybody but most people and you know therefore have had a very hard time staffing their campaigns um and uh yeah it sucks it Um, sucks and uh what aoc is doing right now we love to see it rad as hell all right uh should we talk a little bit about uh, our patreon or schedule for the next couple weeks would love to um, thank you for everyone. Thank you so much to everyone who's already uh, become a, a patron. We were so excited to start releasing 
um some bonus content for you there uh I've, we've gotten some feedback that the uh the sound quality on our uh on our show is inconsistent we agree <laughs> and uh you know if uh, the more patrons we get the the more we'll be able to invest in the show that we love to make so much um and also also it's always a little better in person than when we yeah. talk to people from all over the country yeah the skype the skype trying. ones aren't as good but we can't have everyone come to our apartment in brooklyn so yeah we're tr- you we're know trying. we're trying um but yeah uh we again we're so excited to start rolling out some of our bonus content and uh if you could even spare uh, a few dollars five dollars uh and become a patron and support the show it means the world to us it's uh patreon.com forward slash reply guys and uh yeah we're we're gonna start um releasing some uh interviews some more bonus interviews and uh just like more personal sillier stuff i think too yeah um you know we've been interviewing a lot of uh leftist women that are running for office so in some cases like we really want to get those out to the the most people possible so we may release some early on patreon and then uh unlock at a later date um because you know we want everyone to be able to hear those certainly um but you know we after this uh after this push of trying to get the word out about uh, all these amazing progressive candidates um, running for office, you know, we, we are going to be doing some um, exciting interviews with comedians and journalists again. And uh, can't wait. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't do the mini Mike B uh, drag episode this week because these Nevada results are, are just so exciting. We're it's too, kind of, we're too excited. Yeah. But that is uh, in the pipeline very soon. I mean, and you know what the, the mini Mike B drag has asked, is going to be evergreen i think we can all agree on that yeah (laughs) all right um well up next we have an interview with the fantastic Lindsay boylan who is running for congress here in new york you're Uh, gonna love her she's so great she and her daughter came to brooklyn uh to my apartment this week so you know the sound is good on that one um her daughter's so cute so cute it was amazing um yeah and uh we love Lindsay. we had a great time talking to her i think you'll enjoy it as well we'll see you see you soon Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. We are so excited um, in our our series of interviewing uh, progressive women running for office. We are so thrilled uh, to be joined today uh, by a candidate for uh, the Democratic primary in New York's 10th district, Lindsay Boylan. Thank you so much, ladies, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Tell us for a second where the 10th district is. What areas does it cover? So it covers the Upper West Side and parts of Morningside Heights right near Columbia University. All of the West Side from Hell's Kitchen to Chelsea, the West Village, Greenwich Village, Tribeca, Battery Park City, Soho, Wall Street, Fidei. And then it jumps over into Brooklyn and it has parts of Sunset Park, Kensington, Borough Park, a little bit of Midwood. It's It's a super gerrymandered district, but it has tons of coastline. As all of them are in New York, they all seem every yes. everyone we interview who's running in New York uh, in New York City is like it is gerrymandered to hell. <laughs> yeah. It's set up to to keep whoever's in office in office. Sure, you know it's like that's a very I mean those all those neighborhoods that you mentioned are very affluent. I'm sure the median income there is quite high. You know the fascinating thing? Yes, it's the most unequal district in the country. So we have. Wow. If you think about it, we have some, to your point, the most affluent neighborhoods. And then we have people who are barely struggling, Mm. you know, barely, barely able to make it. 30% of our residents are rent burdened. So like, you know, you have one bad month, two bad months, you lose your job, you have a big unintended medical expense, you might not be able to stay here. And that I think is one of the surprising things about this district, because people look around and they see affluence and then they don't real, we don't realize how many people are struggling mm-hmm. and it's um super blue district so it shouldn't be that way right yeah it's this is definitely related in some way to what you were just saying but it feels like over the past few years new york has been a hotbed for the growing democratic socialist movement and i'm yes. imagining a lot of that is connected to the income inequality here but are there any other factors that you see that have made new york like such a an amazing place for uh electing socialists to office 
I think it's because in part what you just said, and then also because few statistics say that 2020 is the first year where younger generations are going to outweigh older generations in terms of voters. And I think you see that in who's come to the city. Uh, the demographics of, of our district, the most dynamic piece of it's all younger people, younger families, younger professionals. And their experience of the world is our experience of the world. We tried to grow up in the financial crisis. We've never been paid as much as our parents were. Mm-hmm. We have the you know highest amounts of college debt. We've seen our parents lose equity, the only equity they had in their homes. And we've grown up, uh, you know, with 9-11 in the, the backdrop and all of these, um, you know, engagements across the world that have have been going on for maybe our whole adulthood and young adulthood. And I, there's a lot of frustration and people people see I think people don't trust that the people who've been in office for 30 years are going to do anything differently. Right. And that's, that's, I think that's a big part of it. There's such a frustration that, you know, Bernie talked, has talked about. Um, and one thing I really love about the conversation of the progressive movement that he's largely led is it's not just the Republican establishment. It's the democratic establishment. It's structures that keep the same people in power that are more comfortable with doing things the way that they've always been done. And it's not working for a huge number of people. And it's not just young people. You know, my parents will never be able to retire. They, uh, my dad's lost six or seven jobs since the financial crisis because all of the companies he's worked for were, you know, purchased by private equity firms. I mean, it runs the gamut. And I think there's a tremendous amount of frustration and it's not reflected in what we see in the media. And that's what I think we've seen in some of these early states where, um, Bernie has done so well. And um, if you add, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the people who are supportive of Warren as well, it's a huge progressive movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New York has a kind of unique political machine, yeah. it seems like. Yes. I, you know, I mean, I, I follow politics really closely and I still kind of struggle to understand all of the power dynamics at play Uh would you be able to give us any sure. insight into what is happening yeah. in New York politics and why it is so particularly corrupt? Uh, yeah, I think there are a number of things going on. I mean, full disclosure, I worked for state government the last three years before I decided to leave, in part because I didn't like how things worked. I ended up being the only mom in senior staff with young, you know, with a young kid. Um, I didn't, the rooms that I was in um, were were making decisions about policy, but there were actually separate rooms where real decisions were made. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that kind of um, backroom dealing is t- traditionally how things have happened in New York. It's it's one of the more politically corrupt places in the country. And, um, you know, the the everything from how elections are run to um, the incentives to get things done have a lot to do with just keeping the same people in power. I remember when I um, became the deputy secretary for economic development. I was in Albany and all of a sudden a bunch of lobbyists just knew my name and knew my face because I was one of the people who had, you know, the ability to make decisions about, um, you know, places to invest in. And it is just not the way things should work. Um, there should be a real separation between, um, lobbyists and corporate money and special interest groups and politicians but there's not, you know, one key feature of that, I think, is um, and it's no excuse, but um, a lot of the political leaders work other jobs. You know, some of them have law firms work at other places in the state assembly, for instance. And I think that that, you know, having those conflicts of interest are really bad on the outset. And I also think if you look at any most mayors we've had, most elected leaders we've had, they follow a chain of having worked for someone else who was in power, having done something for someone else who was in power, being the son of someone who was in power, um, because it is largely male. I mean, I, my daughter and I are represented at every level from from our city council member to governor by a man. Um, and in that process, there's such a desire to just keep things the way that they've always been. You know, there's a there's a real fear of change and. That was one of the most inspiring things about seeing AOC break through that, because um, if, you know, people who knew of Joe Crowley before that would never have thought that was possible. 
right? right. Um, because he had a real stronghold on quote unquote the machine. And um, I think that had a lot to do with who was moving, you know, moving into communities and who was getting politically engaged and who was really frustrated by how things didn't work for most people. I think that's one of the most um, deceptively corrupt things about a, a hard blue area like this. Yes. Um, I know that, you know, similar places in the country like the Bay Area uh, are, are similarly afflicted. It's these people who have been in uh, they've been in positions of power for decades and they've never faced a primary challenger. Never. And they would you know, it's it's an assumed blue district. So they're never going to face like a real Republican challenger either. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's been so cool to see is these places that are, uh, you know, like New York City um, and like San Francisco, where there is an emergence of progressive primary challengers who are saying like, just because these people are Democrats does not mean that they're working for us. And I think that... um to your point i you know i feel like i really like became radicalized when i moved to new york because of the incredibly in your face disparate wealth yes. uh it's the richest rich right next to the poorest poor and no one should feel comfortable with that right there's no. such a um it's it's not right it's completely un i came to new york with 100 bucks in my pocket no job you know like a lot of us do who don't grow up in New York and, you know, there are many different kinds of challenges, but I, I had, I was inspired by Jane Jacobs who was talking about the quality of city life and, and preserving neighborhoods and the like. We're in a crisis of, 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 of huge magnitude when um, not only can, is public housing deteriorating and not being invested in, but all of the neighborhood that entire communities grew up in, and let's say NYCHA and Fulton houses right down the street from me, their grocery store is, is closed. You know, they're, they're all of the local things that make a community a community are disappearing. And um, it's incredibly frustrating. And I, and I don't think anyone can feel really good about, you know, where we are. Um, on the subject of incumbency, the congressman, Congressman Nadler, who I'm running against, he's been in office almost 30 years, never had a serious challenge, and he's passed only three pieces of his own legislation into law. Uh, one of those pieces is naming a building after the guy who died in office so he could get the seat through county committee. And to me, um, not that the gentleman, Ted Weiss, didn't deserve that, but that's the kind of stuff that incumbents do. They <laughs> yeah. get, you know... They, the big stuff. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, the issues the people care yeah. about. Yeah. Meanwhile, we, we, you know, we have public housing that's crumbling. We need a, a robust moonshot ish series of investments to deal with housing, not just public housing, but affordable housing, supportive housing, you know, all sorts of workforce housing for the 21st century, because it's one of the ways we really feel inequality and any number of the issues. And, and, um, you know, supposedly what, this is a powerful person. You know, this is, this is what we get for such a powerful person. Um, and then, you know, you see the machine day in, day out. I, I, uh, I constantly meet with people who say, you know, I'll, I'll vote for you, but I just can't be seen with you in a picture that kind of stuff. It's like, um, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's actually very cool in punk rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm like, you know, take the, take the, you know, to our, our social media team, take, takes, take the location off. So he doesn't like follow us. You know, there, there's all these sorts of things that happen in machine politics that are meant to intimidate. Oh, so you're actually afraid. Oh no, I'm not afraid. Oh, okay. But I actually find it fascinating because, you know, when I first started running, one of the, the most powerful surrogates for the congressman sent me in like an email saying your career's over. You're going to be destroyed, blah, 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 blah from his law firm email. And I've gotten things like that throughout the campaign. I think it's funny and I share it with people mainly because I'm not afraid, but if, if people do that to me in all of my respective visibility and, you know, all things being equal, the power that I have that let's say my mom didn't have before me, my grandma that didn't have before her. If people do that kind of crap to me, think about what happens to people who don't have the same opportunities that totally. I've had. And it pisses yeah. me off to no end. And that's why if you're like, well, do you really want to talk about it when, you know, he comes after you and stuff like that or his team does? I said, absolutely, because yeah. this system needs to go. That's not about me. It's not I can handle it. But this needs to be we need to shed a light on all this because yeah. we 
I refuse to make, I refuse to live in a world where especially women and people who've been left out of decision-making roles since the beginning of this country, frankly, continue to be intimidated by that process. And I am so lucky because while I may have come from a family that could have been easily intimidated given where we came from socioeconomically, I am in a place that I have some power and my power is to say, screw that. I'm not going to let this happen. You know? So I, I I know I meandered through that, but no, no, (laughs) no, no, no. it's really (laughs) useful insight. Um, one of the, one of the points that you brought up was that, um, many people in New York city and New York state politics have a quote unquote second job, a second career. And very often that is entwined with the real estate industry in this country. And I, uh, you know, I know that housing is a big priority for you as it is for so many of us, uh, who live and work here. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's not difficult to see why it's almost impossible to get anything substantive changed with yes. uh, NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, um, and different kind of subsidized forms of housing when so many of the people who are writing the laws are in bed with these sometimes billion dollar real estate companies. Absolutely. And I think even that's a broader issue at even the congressional level. There are a few things that you said that are pretty that I think are really important. Um, There was some study that uh, said some huge percentage of legislation that's written for Congress is actually authored by lobbyists Mm -hmm. because the volume of what gets written is so big that staff don't even have time to do it. So you basically have special interest groups putting their own language in, in things that happen and and that's a big reason to get money out of politics, because we should never have special interest groups basically writing the laws that are supposed to govern how we as people live. Um, and I do think at the state level, you know, the the coalition that turned the Senate blue, the state Senate, really pushed back on sort of the power structures. And I think a lot of the, the, the rent reg changes yeah. in the last legislative cycle were a reflection of that. It was people saying... We're not going to let, you know, special real estate interests drive decision making. But if you look at, for instance, um, the donations for 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 governor, I mean, you can give twenty five thousand dollars. I mean, you can give a lot of money. You can give more to a state assembly race and then for governor than you can for a congressional race. And that's because we've made we've made a, a, a warped system around money in this state. That's another example of why it's it's so um in some ways behind and and messed up is that it's it's it a lot of it has to do with money and who gets to who gets to have a seat at the table i do think that some of the changes um with the you know t- the democratic takeover basically of both houses provide pushback um particularly against um the governor uh i think and that's all good things like bail reform conversations these things housing is for me such a big issue because you know i mentioned this is the most unequal district in the country uh there are a lot of ways that we need to fix that there's no like one you know game genie fix to anything but if you can't even live like if you can't even stay if you don't have safe housing we're never going to write any of the other challenges there are over a hundred thousand new york city students who are homeless this past Mm -hmm. year i mean that is unbelievable to me um you know and and the problems the problems have a local component to it for instance with NYCHA public housing um mismanagement back and forth between the governor and the mayor who frequently have pissing contests which is another one of the problems that I should have put in there but a a lot of it has to do with federal disinvestment I mean the federal government walked away and disinvested in public housing federally created public housing um years ago and now we need 30 billion dollars plus to right the ship even and begin to and problems build off of themselves because if you don't have enough money to manage something it's very hard to get people who want to step into that situation right really good people who are quality have the experience that's necessary to help right the ship but i i in my mind and my heart and speaking with people in our community the answer isn't to privatize um <laughs> Yeah, uh, these things. I mean, is it ever? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, Not on this show. And that's what's being offered up. I mean, the the one of the the most difficult things about politics and government and governance is that 
you actually have to make decisions, not just to get you reelected. You have to make decisions that are going to be the best thing for the kids of the people that are voting for you, right? And their kids. And the minute we talk about giving up land, real estate on NYCHA sites for market rate development in order to get short-term um, fix money, um, we're, we're, we're pawning off the future of public housing. We're pawning off um, the future of affordable housing in the city of New York when we make these decisions that are permanent. I mean, it, it's a real problem. And, it, and in my mind, we do need these fixes. Um, you know, I spent a fair amount of time working in state government um, in my last year when I oversaw the state side of the housing portfolio, getting money for, for NYCHA, but it's not nearly enough. We need a federal, federal um, investment a huge investment. Um, the problem I have is also that we're just now getting to those conversations. I know Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez has pro pro um, proposed some legislation this 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 past fall to to get federal money for NYCHA and other public housing, but these problems didn't start overnight, like any of the housing issues that we have or any of the systemic issues we have. Um, and we need to be doing much more. Yeah, it's been um, almost 40 years of deregulation yes. and uh, privatization, and it's going to take a long time and a, a lot of money to to fix. Yes. Um, I, I worked on the, uh, the Housing Justice for All campaign last year, and every time, to, you know, to your point, every time I see new building, because, you know, in New York, you look around and there's constantly new building, but they're always luxury condos. Always. And a lot of those condos go vacant. Yes. And the ones that don't, a lot of times are pied-a-terres or, you know, people who buy them. We need a pied-a-terre tax. At the state yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's one of those things that is, that's the, to me, is a crystallization of the gridlock and yes. the lunacy that exists in in the state government is that a pied-a-terre tax, when when people are polled about it, it is overwhelmingly slam dunk popular and we can't get it passed. Yes. Um I would push more on the governor for that one. <laughs> we, we hate Cuomo on this podcast. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, Wait, it's okay. Uh, excuse me. You hate Cuomo. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is a personal hero of mine. He is endorsed by Planned Parenthood. So there we go. You can do well, no it's wrong. Hero to women. It's very funny because I remember Kate when I read um, one of your recent pieces about you know being supportive of Hillary in 2016. Um, I was as well. And I met her when I was in high school and I was like a dorky, dorky, dorky person who fell in love with politics. And I saw her and I was so inspired by her and I, I continue to be inspired by her, but something has happened in my own political awareness around this world that, um, that coincides with really believing in what Bernie is doing. Um, it's not enough. I mean, the people who've been in office, who've been making decisions in the Democratic Party are much more concerned from what I've seen up close in holding power than they are in making the changes that are necessary. And I get it. That's the easy way that, you know, it's 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 scary to make things truly democratic. But one of the most interesting things I think that Bernie is doing is. Really shining a lens on popular democracy and how far we've strayed from that. And that's why it makes people so afraid. I mean, they like to say the word socialism, like that's a scary thing, but any version of American socialism is going to be <laughs> far different than anything you even see in Europe. And, and if, if you aren't scared by what is going on right now around us in exactly. our current state, then get out of the way because, yeah. um, and, and to to that point, one of the things that inspires me so much about Bernie is uh, are the people who have who've come after him, who have been yes. inspired to run because of him. Yes. And, you know, when you were talking about AOC earlier, not only was Joe, Joe Crowley like part of the Democratic machine, he was one of the highest ranking yes. members in the House, in the party. Yes. Um, and I don't think I, I still think it's it's hard for people to get their mind around how monumental that win was. Huge. And how much of a sea change I think that that signaled to a lot of people. Yeah. Huge. Huge. It was, yes. And 
it was shocking to the political establishment. And for me, it was an aha moment because I said, this, this is exactly what needs to happen. We need more people. You know, no one can be AOC. She's her own person. And, but in order to make things better in this country, we need a lot more people to do right. what she's doing and have the example of Bernie. And I have been welcome because, you know, what I'm doing is challenging the establishment. And it's been amazing how welcoming the movement behind Bernie Sanders has been. Yeah. And that I've found um, it just wonderful. It's the most, it's one of the more exciting things that's happened to me as someone who's loved politics my whole life. This is one of the first times where I feel gen genuinely engaged. So, I mean, there's one aspect, which is the policy, which is finally trying to be responsive to people's pain points in this country, which are real, which are real pain points that I think have been largely ignored. Um, how people are hurting economically and beyond and, you know, mental health, which we'll talk about, but um, even just how people are being welcomed into the movement. I don't think if he had created his, you know, some of the work and the people who are behind what he's doing, um, the progressive movement, we would, we would be where we are in this country today with people across the country running progressive campaigns like myself. Let's, Switch gears for a second to something that you just mentioned. Mental health is a big issue in your campaign. And yes. you're actually the first person on this podcast that we've had the chance to to talk about that with. Can you say a little bit more sure. about what your focus is in that area? Sure. So first, people are always like, well, what makes you want to run for office? Because, and I get it, there's this perception that if you want to be in politics or you want to run for office, that you have to be some kind of egomaniac. And I... I, I get that tendency. And or it's, you can be a comedian. Yeah, exactly. That's what we do. Sometimes yeah. I feel like when I'm going to these political clubs, I'm doing my routine. And yeah. then my other friends um, who are running, are, we're, we're, we are doing a set, you know. Um, I love that. And sometimes we get laughed at. <laughs> but, um, you know, for me, everything about kind of what I'm doing and what's important to me came from a very early place. I came from a generation. Uh, I came from a family of three generations of women. My grandmother my aunt and then my sister who all lost custody of their kids because of mental illness and addiction issues, um, which obviously, which, which frequently go together. Right. Um, and for me, I spent a lot of my childhood and growing up thinking, how can I fix my family? How can I fix this? But we frequently can't fix the past. We can't fix things for other people, but what it became was how do I do something with this that can help other people? Because you know, it's no, it's, we have a lot of intergenerational problems. Poverty is one of them. And a lot of these things are interconnected. Um, and mental health for me is at the heart of so much of it. I mean, just as an aside to show the scale of the problem, I'll say two things. More people in Manhattan are Googling anxiety and depression and therapy than gun control, climate change and plumber combined. Now that's not meant to diminish any of those really important issues. It's just to show we may not hear about it on a political stage frequently enough, but it's on top of mind issues. It's a top of mind issue for people daily. Um, kids are experiencing record levels of anxiety and depression starting at 12 and 13. Young black men are committing suicide in very, very elevated numbers. Um, young women are committing suicide in, or attempting to do so at, at much higher numbers. And that's just the generation that's coming up. You look at who's who's imprisoned, for instance, on Rikers Island, something mm -hmm. like 40% of people there have serious mental illness. Now, we can talk about where, where are these issues coming from. There's a lot of systemic poverty trauma that happens that contributes to mental illness, depending on what we're talking about. But we're not we're not really dealing with any of it. We mm -hmm. have a patchwork mental health system that only works for people who can afford it. So we perpetuate all of the challenges that we have, like I think one of the greatest opportunities of this moment in time where we're talking about Medicare for all and we're going to we're going to get it and we have presidential candidate who's leading talking about it is to really focus on mental health, not at the expense of physical health, but mental health is just as important as physical health. But we don't resource it the same way. We don't have checkups for mental health. We don't have enough professionals in schools. And at the same time, the single largest source of disability globally worldwide is depression. Mm. So it's causing any kind of, every kind of issue we have from housing to 
homelessness to criminal justice reform to our economy is at its heart affected just as much by mental health and mental illness as it is by anything else. And yet we're really not dealing with it. No one in New York City delegations in the mental health caucus. I'm going to wake up every day and make that one of my issues to talk about and to deal with. And that's what we need. I mean, I'm going to I'm not going to quote famous presidents in my speeches. I'm going to quote my therapist. <laughs> just nice. to normalize it and i'm not trying to like goop eyes this yeah, as yeah. if it's like some you're not sexy gonna, thing yeah you're not gonna talk about vaginal jade exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah. but my point is every uh, to the extent that we destigmatize every form of mental health care whether it's for serious mental illness or you know ongoing talk therapy whatever that means for people none of it's accessible because we're not even talking about it. And mm -hmm. if we can't talk about it, we can't fix a problem. And so I'm going to talk about it all the time. We are coming to the end of our time here. I wanted to just see if there are any issues that we didn't ask you about today that you wanted sure. to make sure you got a chance to talk about. Sure. Yeah. So climate change. I mean, I hear about it, it, it nonstop in the neighborhood, in, in our community, and you hear about it every day. And I'm all for a Green New Deal, um, very much a supporter of it, will, once elected, push fully alongside my colleagues. But one of the areas of climate change that I really think I can contribute to is dealing with the reality on the ground in an environment that's already changed. So when I worked for the state of New York, I oversaw all the state's recovery work in Puerto Rico. Um, I came to New York. And just after we got back from my honeymoon, Hurricane Sandy happened and it was like walking around in I Am Legend downtown because nothing was working. Um, power was out. And the reality is we're going to have to deal with increasingly with superstorms. And right now we have a federal system and a federal government that totally doesn't acknowledge that in terms of how it treats extremes. The people who are always hurt the most by extreme weather and climate based emergencies are the elderly women and children and people who have the fewest options and opportunities to go somewhere else. We saw that in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And we also saw that you had Puerto Rico fighting with flooding in Texas, fighting with, from an appropriation standpoint, California forest fires, and honestly also battling in the appropriations process with 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. That is a warped system that doesn't work, especially in a, in, a, in a day where we're going to have only more of these ex weather extremes. We need an appropriations and emergency process that works. We need a federal emergency management organization that works better than FEMA and is truly resourced. We need to be much more limber and responsive. And when that doesn't happen, like it hasn't happened, we end up having a system where in the case of Puerto Rico, George Washington University study said something, we lost thousands of lives due, mm -hmm. to, due to slow response time. And um, and the choices that are made, particularly by this administration, typically are racist. Um, and we need people who have experience like myself um, in Congress to deal with not only the 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 changing of our economy and our energy portfolio. To take away fossil fuels, but we also need people who just have experience with dealing with a climate that's already changed and how we prepare governments and how we fund local and state governments, particularly in coastal cities like New York. I mean, the bottom part of this district, lower Manhattan <laughs> is still recovering and yeah. we're primed for another superstorm at any point. Yeah. Um, so, and it really shouldn't be a beautiful spring day right now. No, it shouldn't. It recording. shouldn't, but I'm not going to complain because it was yeah. nice. To it's so <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, it was yes. really nice. It's yes. really beautiful. The planet is uh, on fire, but it yes. is gorgeous out right now. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Lindsay. Well, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Can you give us uh, the kind of basic information about how people can find you, sure. vote for you, donate to you, volunteer for you. What do you need? How can we help? We need all of it. So Lindsay Boylan, it's with an E, Lindsay with an E. People often mix it up. Um, they can find my website that way. I need help volunteering. I need help with people who can donate. I need all kinds of help because it's going to take a real movement to do this. And the relevant date is June 23rd. That's the primary date for this 10th congressional district. Uh, that's when I need everyone to vote. and. Um, Reach out to us if you have the time to volunteer. We need all kinds of help. And frankly, it's going to be a fun adventure. It already has been. And that's part of what we're trying to create is a climate that's very inclusive. I'll be the first woman in 50 years to represent this super blue district. 
Bella Abzug Hell was the yeah. last woman. <laughs> and I want, I, we want as many people who, who are excited and passionate about change think that we need it now to get engaged and we need to do that. So um, we would love if you reach out on email. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and I do most of my own social most of the time. So um, please do reach out. Thank wow. you so Thanks much, so Lindsay. Much. You're Thank the best. You. And uh, yeah, come out and canvas for Lindsay. Yes, uh, please. All right, Lindsay. Thank you again. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.